Welcome back to the Narrative Monopoly podcast. On today's episode, we have our first return guest, the first guest, Martin Gurry. Martin and I did a call-in episode. Call-in is an app uh, that is kind of like Clubhouse, uh, but it's a lot better, and you can create a feed on there where it basically creates a show, it records, um, but you can also export the audio. And this conversation was more supposed to be a casual Q&A, but Martin and I spoke and, and thought that it turned out great and decided to put it on this main feed for everyone to listen to. You can also listen to it on the call-in app if you're on there. Um, so it is a bit more casual than normal, uh, but I think it turned out great. We talked to Martin about a possible documentary for Revolt of the Public and also get his take on a few current affairs, including what just happened in Afghanistan, uh, and also his recent piece about history. We talk a lot about history. So without further ado, I will press play and a little bit of housekeeping at the end as well. <laughs> there he is. Hey, Martin. How, how are things? Well, I'm doing okay, doing? but I, I don't think it's got anything on the heat we've got in Northern Virginia right now. No, it's, uh, I, I mean, I was in Austin in June and it was, it was a lot hotter than it is right mm-hmm. now. And I heard there's a, a heat wave, yeah, going over uh, the, the, the Northern seaboard. So um, I'm glad that you could cool it's off with, uh, with this, this Q&A. <laughs> Great. So for everyone uh, that's listening right now and will listen, um, Martin was the first guest on the Narrative Monopoly podcast, and uh, his book, The Revolt of the Public, is is absolute must uh, must read uh, to understand what's going on in the world today. Um, though he has done a ton of interviews about that, and so last time I saw Martin in person, and about maybe a month ago, you know, we were talking about well, we should do an episode that is uh, not centrally focused on revolt of the public, although obviously those themes will come up because, you know, that that book has been sold and and detailed at length. And I know that you have other thoughts on on the world. And the cool thing about this call-in app is that this this recording will go into the feed. So people who are not here can listen to it later. Um, And I think that that's a a really cool thing. It makes it super easy to edit. Um, So thanks for for being the first guest on this version of the narrative monopoly. Great. Happy to be here. So uh, there was an idea that you floated when we got lunch that uh, there is a possibility of a documentary. Yeah, that was a very weird thing. I, I should have lunch with you more often. What, what <laughs> happened was, you know, we were talking about possibility of a new book and what I said was, you know, what I really would like to do is a, a documentary on, on the revolt of the public because it's such a visual subject, right? I mean, there it's, it's the, the visuals of of people doing the same thing, you know, hitting the streets all the way around the world. It just would make it, a, a, and these individuals being so, um, you know, the characteristics being so similar, it would just make a real fascinating documentary since I just sort of hopefully fantasizing the very next day i got a call from somebody i won't name names yet because we're still working through the details uh saying that um they wanted to do a documentary if at all possible and um 
So I thought, well, like I said, I should I should have lunch with you more often next time. Uh, you know, instead of Christmas and Santa Claus, I just you know book lunch with you. <laughs> I'm happy to be your your good luck charm if that's what it takes. Fun fun fact for the audience is you know the the uh, perhaps the the best or, or most striking and poignant example of uh, the revolt of the public. You know, being the uh, the, the January sixth uh, on the Capitol. You know, Martin and I recorded that episode. I think an hour before that started, uh, we got off yeah. the phone and then the day that we got lunch, all the Cuba stuff was happening. So, right. so maybe it's, it's, it's uh, good luck for you, but maybe not the world. I don't know. No, no, I'm, I'm like Dr. Death. I mean, um, after January 6th, the book sales just went crazy and I, I literally had to put a, a, a limit to the number of interviews I mean, talking is, I mean, it gets kind of old. So um, I had to put a limit to the number of interviews so people wanted to talk to me because something horrible had happened. I mean, it's like, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault, but, you know, you're, you, you, you're like the doctor here. You know, you're the only one that can diagnose what's going on. Yeah, nobody likes a doctor. So let's, let's, uh, let's dive right into this piece that you just wrote for discourse magazine the use and abuse of history so mm -hmm. why could you give the audience a, a quick overview of the piece and then why did you feel that it was necessary to write it well very very briefly um americans have always had a um very peculiar relationship with history uh we tend to say when we really feel that something is boring and useless and out of date, we say it's history, right? It never occurs to us uh, that that's essentially our memory. So we're not used to dealing with history. We're not used to, to wrestle with it. We have never asked the question, what is American history? Um, what can it do for us? And what can't it do for us? So now we, it just struck me because I mean, history was what I did. I mean, I, I, uh, that was my subject in school, and essentially, as, a, as an analyst in, in, in CIA, I felt like knowing history was far, far better grounding and understanding what was going on than reading a bunch of um, current affairs type reports. So I've thought about history. Most countries spend a lot of time thinking about history because there there's scars and there's pains, so they wonder why what's gone wrong. Uh, Americans are very optimistic, and we just look at the at the world uh, from the perspective of the future. It's kind of like a frontier. We always go for the frontiers. It's a frontier that's always receding, and we're always heading forward towards it. Um, and now we have this—I don't know what to call it—the strange political tussle over um, uh, you know, critical race theory, racism, whatever you want to call it, uh, and whether American history portrays us as as a, a good country or a bad country, uh, uh, you know, the land of the free or the land of the oppressors. Um, and basically the, the book was an attempt to clarify, and I won't get into the details, because it was a tad philosophical, not too much, but to get into the details, of, I mean, to clarify what history can do for us and what it cannot do for us. I mean, history is always going to have a point of view. Uh, and and as long as you you know include the the signals that we have received from the still receiving from the past or the echoes of the past in a way that is plausible that that, that makes sense 
uh, it's an acceptable interpretation of history. Um, it's not like science where you can falsify it. It's it, it, very hard to falsify a point of view. So, um, so the question is, what is history in the end? It's, it, it's, it's memory. It's an attempt to forge a moral identity. I think it was Richard Rorty that, that said that. And um, so you have to decide if, if you find as to do with critical race theory, which I think has a number of flaws, but the main one for me is it basically closes the door on moral progress. It says, no, not really are we bad and have been bad, but we will be bad. And, and there is no helping this. Um, I think that that's very sterile and very destructive. So I think if you're for, forging a moral identity, you need to have, you need to recall the moments. I mean, you can't just make a nation be the sum of its moral disasters. And, and no question, racism and slavery were moral disasters. But there was more to America than that. And if you want to emerge from that, if you want to emerge from uh, racism, you need to rely on the, the better angels of our nature, like Lincoln said, uh, to guide us to, to the, that frontier where things will get better. Well, and the story of America really is overcoming those things. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's pretty clear. But I, I like the fact that you, you said, you know, history comes with a point of view. Um, you know, a great, a great mm -hmm. example of this is, you know, had we lost the Revolutionary War, George Washington would have been one of history's greatest traitors. He would have, he, he would have been right. history's greatest traitor. So it's, it really is that uh, I, w I wouldn't go so far as, you know, only the victors uh, write history. But but in effect, um, you know, it is it is subjective. Um, yeah, I, I, if I may interject, I actually yep. dis disagree with you. I think I think a, a man of the character of, of George Washington would would go down as a man of the character of George Washington. He would have just been a loser instead of a winner. And when you look at, for example, the history of um, you know the the ancient nation of Israel, its great moral moment came in defeat, not when they were conquering lands and and slaughtering the Canaanites and building temples and stuff like that. It was when they, they were defeated that the prophets came along to, to express a much deeper morality, a much deeper relationship with their God uh, that they had had before. So you can lose. And, and now what, 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 hmm? what if, but the, that, that would be based off of our conception of, of morals, right? So what if, what if ISIS, you know, actually completed their goal of, of, a, of a global caliphate and now all of a sudden, uh, you know that 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 those morals are no, are no longer moral. They're they're immoral. Well, you know, we we conducted that experiment. I think, and and I always make it a point to say, I'm an old guy. Okay, so on the one hand, that means I'm an old guy. On the other hand, it means I've got perspective. And uh, we conducted that experiment. The Soviet Union told us. Uh, for 75 years, your morality is essentially uh, the morality of the dollar and, and of exploiting people to obtain that dollar. And our morality is one of sharing and equality. And there were many people here. Everybody talks now about the Cold War having been a moment of moral clarity. Well, those people weren't here, okay? Uh, there were many people in the West who were persuaded that this argument was true. Not necessarily communists. They just felt that the, the, the system was morally superior to ours. Um, and it collapsed. And it collapsed as much as anything out of mor moral hollowness. It had nothing in its core. Nobody really believed in it. Nobody thought that really was the way they wanted to live. Uh, so I, I, I think if ISIS 
ISIS wouldn't last 75 years if it conquered the world. It would last much less than that. It would be a barbarian kingdom. Barbarian kingdoms last a generation or two and then they disintegrate. So it's it, it's a very, uh, I want to say, Rousseauian view that, that people are inherently good. Oh, my God, no. I, that, Rousseau, I, that, I am not Rousseauian in any sense or shape. <laughs> That's what I thought you were no, 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 what I'm saying is there are there are certain constraints in governing human beings, right? Uh, you have to, in some sense, appeal to those things that make us human. If you try to pretend that we're angels, if you try to pretend that Rousseau designed us and not Mother Nature, um, we're going to rebel and we're going to cast off that, that coil and we're going to go back to being ourselves. So the Soviet Union actually was based on the idea that we're all the Soviet humans and that we're all good people and we don't really want to strive to ex- you know, compete with one another and excel with one another, but rather to share and that doesn't work. That just doesn't work. Even if it were sincere, which it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't have worked. Now, let me, let me get your thoughts on this. Would, would you say it's a fair... Uh, a fair assessment that history is the data set for all ideas. Yeah, history is memory. Memory is a really interesting thing. Again, uh, in my lifetime, the interpretation of what memory is have changed very much. And where things seem to have settled is it's not a recollection of the past. It's we needing something in the present and mining this very loose perspectival data set, yes, uh, but it's not data set in the way that, you know, a bit would be a data set. It's because it's much more loose and interpretive. Looking for something back there that can help us right now, right? So the memory is, uh, it, 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 it's it's not really about the past. It's not even about the present. It's about the future. It's about, memory is about decisions we have to make about the future. And, and, and I think history provides that for a nation and a people and, and a community. Uh, and, and so... There are many contradictions. I mean, there's an infinite number of, of facts that have happened in, in the past, you know, from somebody who just sat there or to just gigantic battles that decided, you know, whether kings would live or die. Uh, so why do you choose certain facts and you ignore other facts? Well, I guess you would, you know, pe- people would say it's the powerful uh, tend to impose themselves. No question that is true, but the, the, it still remains. If you want to, if you want to shape your, your future as a nation, you have to look at your past and say, what have we done in the past that has worked us through this dilemma? That, that's a great way to put it. Um, let's, let's, let's ask one more question on, on the history uh, topic. You go into, uh, you, have, you have a subsection in this piece, the perils of historicism. What do you mean yeah. by that? This is Karl Popper. Karl Popper is probably my old time favorite philosopher. Um, and he was, he was a primarily a philosopher of science uh, and he's fascinating. And, and I think mostly correct everything he writes about that, but he also, I think for that very reason, um, called out these historical interpretations that pretend to, to be um, kind of like scientific laws, right? Uh, the, the science of man. I think it was David Hume that first came up with that phrase. And it was an aspiration way back in the 18th century because they had discovered all these laws about the natural world. And it seemed only logical that if you turn to, to the human dimension that we would discover these immutable laws. Well, 
200 years down the road. We have not, and it's pretty clear we will never will. But there have been these historians. Uh, Hegel was one of the great ones, uh, if you want to call it that. Uh, the most famous and most influential was Marx and Marxism that that perpetrated what, what Popper called historicism. They basically pretended that by interpreting the past, they could predict the future. And they follow certain tendencies, all of them. And by the way, there have been any number of them. There's a Christian version. There was an Islamist version. Uh, there's all kinds of versions of this, left and right. Uh, but they all kind of seem to argue in the same manner. If you bring up the, 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 the merits of their case, they never say, well, you're wrong because X, Y, or Z. They just say, you're just in the wrong side of history. They, they never address, uh, the, the, they, they have a contempt for debate because they already know the truth, right? These are pseudo-religions in some ways. And Marxism is a pseudo-religion. Uh, and and um, in, my, in my piece, critical race theory, I, I kind of follow its, its, um, its family tree. It, it comes from Marxism, and so it's a subset of Marxism called critical theory, and then critical race theory. Um, and it has that same contempt for debate. If, some, if you say, well, critical race theory advocate, let me dispute what I think you're saying, they would probably say to you, you're probably a racist. You're a racist. So they, don't, they won't engage in argument, these, these historicists, uh, and they, therefore, they're not particularly useful in, in democratic politics because it's all or nothing. Buy everything I say, or I'm going to label you some some bad thing. So, and, and basically, in the end, these these um, these philosophies, these these uh, interpretations of history, become instruments of power. You either uh, uh, obey me, or I'm going to tar your good name for being a bourgeois or being a racist, or you know, the old days of Freud. It was whenever you argue with a Freudian, you're repressing. I said, well, maybe so, but here are my arguments, you know. So that was uh, the the, the, um, the perils of historicism is believing that history is something more than a point of view. It's a scientific uh, process that you can predict the future from, and what becomes very um, contradictory in my, in my uh, belief um, is that then the historian becomes a prophet and a revolutionary and kind of a philosopher king. I mean, Plato was the original in this one. So um, basically, instead of describing history, they are kind of nagging at you to follow the path that history has, has laid out, which, okay, if it's inevitable, it's going to happen anyway. If Basically, the class struggle is inevitable, and, and the proletarian revolution is inevitable, and the class of society is inevitable. Why can't we just sit around drinking beer, right? It's going to happen, right? So it's, it, it's very contradictory. It's a very contradictory way to look at it, but, but that's the pseudo-religious aspect of it, right? I mean, the religions have a little bit of that, too. I mean, uh, they, they give you a little more, uh, most of them anyway, give you a little more free will, but, um, you know, in the, the, the end, if God is in charge of everything, why doesn't everything turn out great? Well, don't, don't tempt me to become a Marxist if all I have to do is sit around and drink beer. Um, that, that's all a vulgar Marxist. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the thing that you're pointing out is like it's just become so obvious in society today that uh, there is like this crop of people who are not interested in debating ideas um, and it's more so an exercise in power. And the surest sign that that is true is there's no 
there, there's actually no like underlying logic that they they give if, if there's a counter argument uh, I personally don't get that I mean if you if you can't argue uh, the other side's position of your idea like even if you you know you full-fledged believe in in something you know if you can't argue from the other per person's point of view uh, then, then it's clearly not an exercise in, in intellectual curiosity and in, in, in trying to achieve the best outcome um, of course these things would never happen in business because you would just go out of business um, they're always in this this societal power struggle right. um, let's uh in order to, to keep this thing moving because we're trying to do it more in a q a format let's uh let, let's i, I want to ask you about this you know i know that you said <laughs> you don't know much about uh crypto as much as you do about uh nu nuclear uh engineering i think you said but um th this is what less okay. less th this is what struck me um that that i don't think anyone's really talking about which was this was kind of the first time where there was a open source yet cohesive response to a piece of legislation in Washington and the voices within that open source community were louder than the legacy distribution. The news, like the, the fact that, you know, the, the amendment on, on crypto uh, was basically the, you know, the talk of the town and it was across all of the mainstream outlets where, where usually what happens is, you know, the, the big players in cable news and the newspapers, like they, they still have the ability to set the agenda when we're talking about stuff in DC. Uh, they were overtaken by the audience uh, that crypto has. So for example, like Anthony Pompliano, he's got a million followers on Twitter. And there's a lot of people in the crypto community that have, a, you know, uh, 10, 20, 50, 100,000 followers on Twitter. And it's not just on Twitter as well. I mean, it's it's across the internet. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that because it very much is in line with, uh, you know, your idea of these these popular revolts um, being organized almost spontaneously. But there was a central, uh, you know, a central point of attack um, on this specific provision in the bill. And I just saw it as an inflection point of this is like the first time to me where it's like no one really notices what's going on. But it's like this is the first time to me where you have uh, the the actual conversation shift because in real time, because of uh, media distribution opposed to, you know, like people marching in the streets or something. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, my big thought would be wait and see. I think that, that I wouldn't leap to any enormous conclusions. Here's the thing. We live today in, in two different worlds, two different dimensions. It's really quite remarkable how that, that has happened. Uh, the people who are... Um, I call them elites, and they 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 run the institutions, and and they work in the institutions. Um, they primarily live in a world of the old analog world, and um, the rest of us tend to live in a much faster, much flatter world. And the two worlds, but you know, we all live partially in one or the other. And I think this this incident was like to me the absolute. Um, so like, if you want to take a, a case study of how this works, here it is, okay? Well, here's the government. The government is thinking about something that it has very little clue about, which is crypto, because anything that has to do with digital, the government has no clue about. So what does it think about that? 
Well, most people, when they think about these, these innovations, they think, well, how can we turn them to advantage? How can we bring in the public? Well, the government looks at it and says, it's a milk cow, right? I mean, it's a milk. I want to milk that cow. You know, so it, 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 to me, it's so remarkable. The only use these innovations have in Washington is for taxing or for, for uh, controlling. Uh, so so that, there's the, what, the beginning of the saga begins with these people not seeing uh, uh, the citizen as a customer the way Amazon would, for example, uh, but as a milk cow to be squeezed as much as possible. So secondly, you have, well, guess what? There are millions, tens of millions. I mean, the number of American uh, crypto users, I, I'm not sure that anybody's put a finger on that, but there are tens and tens of millions of people with, with crypto in the United States of America, right? And these people are very... I, I I, I just interject. I did see that uh, Coinbase passed uh, 60 million uh, users. Yeah, here, I believe so. And I yeah, wouldn't. I, don't quote yeah, me. Hard that, to, but yeah, hard to tell. It's 50 to 75 million is what I keep hearing, and and but it's hard to tell where. But you have to think a large number of those are here, right? So these people suddenly are unified, and how are they unified? They're unified in the way that these. Internet revolts are always unified. They're unified against. Now, suddenly the government is coming down with a, a, a tax mandate and they are all, all against. Okay, so you have this flood, this flood of uh, people complaining to, to Congress. And Congress, of course, with its normal spinelessness, is kind of like, what the heck is going on? And, you know, except for the fact that the, the, the rules of the House are very... Uh, very, you know, 18th century, I would say, uh, they probably would have turned around and, and dropped that, that amendment. Um, so the third part of that is that not only, you know, first you have the government being completely analog and saying, I want to squeeze you. Then you have the public saying, I'm against. Finally, as it enters, as the public enters the, the elite field, uh, Congress, uh, it's ineffective because it's too late. It doesn't know, it, it, neither side knows how to play in the other world very well. So, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. These were uh, lots of people mobilized uh, 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 in a way that clearly shook up the politicians. But this has happened before. And in the end, you have to come up with something more, um, a little more winsome than I'm against that amendment. That is just not a cause that people are going to run to the barricades for and change, change uh, the system for. Now, how, how do we, you know, because you, you have spoken, you know, you, you put this at the end of your book, uh, you know, you're not in the, the prediction business. Um, and I know we, we right. touched on this when we were at launch, but it's still, you know, I'll, I'll kind of prod you again. How does the government change in order to adapt to a 21st century information environment where, you know, the world is moving at the speed of bits and the government is moving yeah even slower than Adams, like, you know, basically, and just, you know, they're, they're working in reverse almost. How, how, any, how, how do you, how do you fix that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't make predictions, uh, but, but there are certain paths that are pretty, pretty obvious to me. Okay. Uh, the, um, the institutions of government have got to be reconfigured. They have been reconfigured in the past, right? The, the institutions we have today are not the ones that the founders and the framers designed. Those were that was a kind of a gentleman's uh, republic and uh, white male uh, and um, much more egalitarian than ours. 
but much less ex- uh, inclusive. So in the 20th century, that started from the very beginning, there was an enormous attempt to become far more inclusive. But to do that, it became, the institutions became far less egalitarian. At the time of, of uh, Lincoln or before, it, the federal government was nothing. I mean, it, it was a, a few people, a change with every president. Um, today, millions are, are, are... Well, the Civil War was like the real accelerant, right? right in the war is, government. War is always an accelerant, right? So when, when Lincoln took over, it was one size. Um, but even by, by the turn of the 20th century, it was still, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, when he was uh, elected, stood in front of the White House and shook the hands of ordinary citizens. And he was famous for his enormous stamina. So she, he shook the hands of like tens of thousands of people. And he was still out there, where it basically wore the public out, right? Um, but I mean, you could do that. You could stand out in front of the White House and people would come by and shake the president's hand who just got elected. I mean, imagine doing that today. So um, we have reconfigured the government before. I think we have now have to do, we have the tools with digital to make it faster and flatter. And there are countries like Estonia that are kind of leading the way in that. Um, there are many experiments that have been conducted. You don't have to belly flop everybody at once, the same, the, the same idea. You know, that's why we have a republic, a, a, a nation of states. Let the states pioneer which way to do this and see what works, see what doesn't. But we have to... Now, now, what does it what does it take process wise? Because you're talking about a lot of people who have uh, a financial and you know status uh, dependency on things staying the same way. A lot of people uh, that are powerful, um, you know, a huge workforce in terms of people who work for the government. So, I mean, is it a president that just like tears down the executive branch? Uh, it, within their means, is it you know constitutional convention? Like how do you, how, how would you see this uh, playing out in a possible yeah. scenario? I mean, the way that happened before, which is different presidents add their bits and pieces. Is that going to be a coherent? Thank goodness. Is it? We're not going to. Um, bring a great philosopher like Plato and lock him up in a room and say, okay, you do it and, and then give it to the president and he'll impose it by force. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to happen in the American way, which is in a, in a, in a largely in a muddle that fits and starts, starting with the states. Uh, no constitutional convention needed. That You're not um, abrogating a, a, any constitutional rights or any constitutional structures. You're just reshaping them. And the way I would think of it, certainly take the example of... Um, of the services. See, when you think about Amazon, like, like one of my sons worked at an Amazon warehouse for a bit. I mean, Amazon is an enormous bureaucracy. You have no idea what an enormous bureaucracy Amazon is. But you and I, we never see that. All right? We never see that. All we see is really fast service for really high quality and inexpensive goods. Now, the federal government I mean, is 10,000 times the, the level of service uh, from what uh, Amazon provides. It is probably the greatest service provider in the history of the world. None of us think of it that way. All we see when we deal with the government is bureaucracy, delay, arrogance, incomprehension, 
um, and a lot of uh, elite, what you were mentioning, a lot of elite rhetoric that wants to make sure that we understand that these things happen only because these people allow it to happen and we, we must genuflect before them and, 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 you know, praise their status. So, I mean, when you look at that... How, how do you mean it's so great? What's an example? What do you mean? Of, of the, the greatest service provider. I mean, look at Social Security. I mean, look at uh, healthcare. Look, I mean, there are there are yeah the scale the of it. The scale of it is uh, is immense. It's immense. Uh, it, you know, you can get into you know the, the national parks. I mean, it, it, A to Z, the government, the federal government manages more services than I think, and, and certainly any entity in the United States, maybe in the world. Um, and 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 it should aim to be Amazon. It should aim to be Amazon. It should, it, it, and that can be done. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and draw a map, but that can be done. And I think, secondly, you need a new elite class. And and I I say that with having really given it a great deal of thought, because I am by no means a revolutionary, and I don't think I'm, I'm not talking about you know defenestrating these people or anything like that. I just mean we have to elect and select a new class of people who are at the top of our institutions because th this crowd is, is, is a lost cause. Uh, and in part is because what you said before, the idea of status, being a 20th century elite was a wonderful thing because no matter what a clown you were, the institution uh, uh, that, that you stood at the top of gave you authority. You were... Um, basically listened to because you stood at the top of that institution. Um, so we had some precedents, honestly, you know, in the 20th century that maybe um, if they had walked in the middle of a cocktail party, nobody will listen to, but they were the precedent. They were listened to, they were treated with a great deal of respect. That is gone, right? That is gone. And they don't want that to be gone. So you need, you need a new generation that doesn't necessarily need that kind of ego boost or that kind of, their idea of service is different than that. That it's not about me; it's about you know the country and, and its interests. Um, and I think uh, it partly would be generational. I think partly we have to work on it. It's really up to you and me. That's the last piece. Is is maybe maybe um, you know there is a sense today of pointing fingers, like I have just finished doing and saying this thing is bad and that thing is bad and that the other thing is bad and maybe the first thing we have to do is look at ourselves or as, a, as an individual and say well what what is my sphere of influence what can i do within that sphere of influence to make uh, sure that the future i want to happen happens i mean there's a there's a kind of a weird instinct today that we all want to save the earth you know so we'll kind of leap over where we are, leap over our friends, family, work, and now we're suddenly in this messianic posture of saving the earth. Well, you know, it's really hard to even change yourself a little bit. Uh, it's hard to lose weight. It's hard to, you know, if you are a smoker, to kick a smoking addiction. It's, uh, so basically, if you can't do these things, the idea that we, you can save the earth, are, it's a little preposterous. So just Look at your family, look at your friends, look at your workspace, look at the, how you treat the people that serve you, you know, waiters, waitresses, uh, how do you deal with those human beings? Uh, and you set an example and, and, and a model for what you would like to happen in, in, in the bigger sphere of, of you know, national government and so forth. 
that that's a great way to put it. Um, all right, to keep this to keep this moving, I'm, I'm what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a uh, a buffet of uh, events in, uh, happening across the world. You can take as much as you'd like, or as or as little as you'd like, and then we will uh, right. we'll, we'll open it up uh, to to callers, see if anyone has any questions, and then we'll we'll try to get you out of here at a reasonable time. <laughs> so, uh, Cuba. The Senate voted to send free internet to Cuba. Uh, that will hopefully, you know, spark, uh, more, uh, information being shared, uh, freely and more widely. Um, Cuba for the first time authorized the creation of small and medium sized enterprises. Only 13% of, uh, the Cuban workforce are, are currently employed in the private sector. So now you can actually create a small to medium sized business in Cuba. Um, all right. Afghanistan. Uh, currently, the Taliban is, is is plowing their way to Kabul, and you know they could take over the entire country. Currently, they are very much uh, exposed. Uh, we have the uh, Biden administration now sending three thousand Marines in a uh, somewhat like a uh, fall of Saigon scenario, and then without comment, China. If you have any thoughts on China, we'll just put it out there. So those those are your three. Take as much as you'd like, or as little as you'd like. All right, those are good ones. Um, Cuba, people of the United States have no idea, no idea of the desperate economic straits that that country is in. No idea because people in this country have no idea of what that system is like. Um, so without spending a whole lot of time there, I can say uh, the government is, in, is desperate, okay? Um, the people have lost their fear. That was what they were shouting when they were protesting. They said, I am not afraid. I said, I thought, well, that's, that's a, that would terrify me if I were a dictator. Um, the internet is an essential element. Of, so, of course, um, the Cuban government immediately reached for what I call the Mubarak switch, which I named after Hosni Mubarak, who, during the revolt in Egypt, uh, killed off the internet and mobile phone service and pretty much flushed himself down the toilet by doing so. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take. I really can't predict that because there's one thing that system is good at is clinging to power. Uh, but, but it, it, you know, the handwriting is on the wall for Cuba. And I think that that bill in the Senate is a brilliant one, and I think it, it will um, speed things along. Afghanistan is a tragedy. I, I don't understand why we pulled out. I mean, there weren't that many Americans there to begin with. Um, there wasn't a, a, I mean, we have had troops in Germany for like 75 years. Um, we have troops in Okinawa for 75 years. Um, we do not want Afghanistan to become a platform for terrorist training, which is what it was when we went there in the first place. So, plus there's a moral aspect to it. We have, we took it over. We made people take sides. Many people sided with us. And now we're backing away and letting those people be slaughtered. Um, so I think, I, I think that's probably the Biden administration has had some moments where I thought, you know, the, he's not Obama. Obama, uh, as a world leader, was possibly the worst in, in my generation. But but this is this is something he's going to have to reconsider, uh, President Biden, because this is this is going to be terrible if if he uh, if he allows it to happen. It's going to be a slaughter of our friends. And needless, just because he wanted to walk out, that makes no sense to me. China, everybody wants me to talk about China. I don't know much about China. I, I can tell you 
we need to um, we need to re rethink our relationship with China. Um, I, I will only say that. I think I think you know again the, the privilege of being old is perspective. Uh, way back when when um, the Chinese economy began to liberalize, there was an uh, a decision of let's not push on the political side because it's inevitable it's going to happen if you liberalize economically you will liberalize um, politically as well so whether you become an actual democracy or not this, this terrible dictatorship can't last under a liberalized economy by the time it became clear 10 or 15 years uh, years down the road that this was not going to happen american companies were deeply invested in china deeply invested and did not want to rock the boat i think with covid we have learned we cannot, we just simply cannot have every uh, chain of supply, uh, manufacturing chain of supply in the United States of America and in a country that is completely irresponsible about the truth, okay? And, and that wishes us not well, so that if things happen where we get cut off from these chains of supply, yeah, they suffer economically, but, but the political side of them is, is happy. So... How do we deal with that? I don't believe it's going to be, you know, Cold War II. The Chinese uh, government does not stand for an ideology that appeals to anybody. Whatever it is, I mean, if somebody knows what that is, explain it to me. They they basically stand for staying in power. And like the Cubans, they're real good about that. So I I, I think we need to rethink. We have to pull out, pull out our supply chains. We cannot have so many ends of or everything we need to begin in China because the Chinese are not trustworthy. So that that's about all I would say. Now, what that rethink would be, I leave to the China experts. Well said. I mean, the one thing that comes to my mind, uh, the, the one saying that that is, uh, you know, the, the basically the the our, our enemies in Afghanistan will say, you know, uh, they have the watches, but, but we have the time. And uh, I think that yep. probably applies to, to China as well, at least what they they uh, purport to be doing. Well, Martin, I, I want to say thank you for coming on here. I know uh, call, Colin, I've, I've been really enjoying it. You got two, two uh, the two Colin guys are followed by speakers right there. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's kind of a clubhouse competitor, but it's also uh, just makes podcasting a lot easier because now you know, we'll just hit end and then this will turn into a transcript and uh, it's pretty easy to, yeah. to trim it. So uh, I know that they probably hope that, that you come on here uh, again. And uh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks <laughs> for uh, spending the Friday afternoon uh, with me and, and our, our, uh, our audience here. Yeah, sure. I mean, after a few minutes of doubt there at the beginning, it was easy. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll I'll, I'll talk to uh, Charlie. Charlie, outside. I think some of it was user error on both of us, but that's okay. We'll, we're just figuring yeah. it out. Okay, so um, yeah, hope to see you soon, Jeff. All right, thanks, Martin, mm -hmm. and, and good luck with uh, the documentary. Thank you. People yeah, are waiting for that. And actually, let me make one last point here. Was uh, I tried to start the show? I think that's how my audio got messed up the first time. I was trying to I was trying to play uh, all along the Watchtower the Jimi Hendrix edition. Yes. And the reason why I was trying to play that song is because I think it would be the perfect uh, song for the trailer for the documentary, because uh, you know, the, the, basically the story is, you know, the Joker and the thief 
are on the outside looking in and it's kind of the story about them, at least how I perceive it. Uh, I don't know if you other people have, have commented this way uh, <laughs> of them kind of like looking in at the tower and, you know, the princes are getting ready to take over uh, and, the, the, you know, the thief is telling the Joker to be more serious so they can, um, you know, they, they can have a shot at, at, at uh, basically taking it over because they're outsiders looking in, which I think is, would be a good, a good theme for your, your, uh, your documentary for the yeah, trailer but that's that's a great idea i'll pass it along <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right thanks martin okay thanks everyone for listening take care all right hope you enjoyed that shorter episode of the narrative monopoly with martin again that was recorded on the call in app makes podcasting super simple um go listen on call call in and get uh subscribe to the narrative monopoly on there um as a, as, a, as a piece of housekeeping, the Narrative Monopoly obviously has missed a few weeks. Um, that is because uh, we are kind of in the background trying to figure out what to double down on. There's some episodes that have done incredibly well. So thank you for everyone for the support and trying to figure out what that through line is and, and figure out how we can beef this thing up. So it's a bit of a summer break, uh, but nonetheless, we are coming back with bigger interviews. So appreciate the support and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.